Welcome to Not Your Father's Data Center Podcast, brought to you by Compass Data Centers. We build for what's next. Now here's your host, Raymond Hawkins. Welcome again, everybody, to uh, Not Your Father's Data Center. We are uh, going to talk today with Pedro Matzer and Jamie Nickerson. Before they join us, just want to remind you what we're trying to do here at Compass Data Centers and with our podcast is just an opportunity. If, if we went to dinner, uh, we'd sit down and we'd talk about uh, politics and we'd talk about religion and, and we'd probably talk sports. And eventually we'd end up talking about work. And, and we just hope that you get to join us at dinner and sit down and, and listen to the work conversation, the things that uh, all of us get to do as a way to uh, in, enjoy uh, our work interaction, enjoy the people we work with and provide for our families. Uh, and we're just grateful to have you listen in with us and, and, and engage in the conversation. We are joined by one of the founders of Kyoto and the creator of the Kyoto Wheel, uh, Pedro Matzer from the Netherlands. Pedro, how are you today, sir? I'm fine, thank you. Glad to have you. And we also have with us today Jamie Nickerson from HED running their uh, MEP uh, engineering side of the business. Jamie, how are you today? Doing great. Happy to be here. All right, guys, thank you both for joining us as we uh, talk about the, um, some things and, and we'll try to uh, explain to our audience today a few of the concepts behind um, cooling, uh, where water fits in the cooling uh, part of a data center, uh, how the Kyoto wheel works, uh, just some of the things that um, I think that smart people like uh, the both of you understand uh, inherently and uh, me and uh, folks that might listen to us might need a little more explanation. So if you guys don't mind, we'll just jump right in. And, and uh, Pedro, we'll start with you. If you don't mind giving us a little bit of a history, uh, your history and the history of Kyoto, and then we'll transition into talking a little bit about the wheel itself. Yes, thanks. Uh, it started about um, uh, 15 years ago now, uh, when we were asked by the Dutch telecom provider and a data center provider in, in the Netherlands to uh, find a system for them that would be a little bit more uh, efficient than the one they currently had. They were at that point running at a PoE of 2.3. And uh, we sat down with a group of people and, and tried to come up with a, a, an energy efficient solution. And by going to all the different possibilities, uh, one of the, uh, the things we looked at was uh, the traditional heat recovery. Uh, something that's very popular in Europe, uh, where normally you uh, save uh, heat energy in wintertime uh, by recovering the heat from your exhaust air. And uh, when I looked at those uh, different um, techniques, I found out that you could use those for a data center where you don't want to bring the air uh, from the data center outside and exchange it for 100% uh, for full fresh air, but by creating two loops, basically, an outside air loop and an inside loop, and and using those uh, heat transfer means for um, basically transferring free cooling. And the, uh, the results we had when we did our first calculation were really, uh, we found them really stunning. Uh, in in Holland, we could save ninety percent of the uh, the um, energy required to uh, to cool the data center, 
and basically we went down from uh, in the in those first designs from a poe of 2.3 to a poe of 1.3 and well that's uh, what people call significant uh, i believe that, that was quite a jump yeah yeah and i mean the first time i i looked at the results i i doubted myself and thought i uh, uh, made a mistake in the calculation or something like that but uh, uh, over and over uh, those numbers are running at uh, 90 to 95 percent uh, free cooling and and uh, just requiring mechanical cooling five percent of the year in the northern part of of europe uh, and um, well, that that's quite a change to the traditional free cooling systems that were operating at that time, which normally were with dry coolers, and those could only operate during freezing uh, conditions outside. And typically, you would get to twenty five percent of free cooling. Uh, so that was quite a jump. Yeah. So Pedro, that uh, that's a little bit of uh, of of where the request Dutch Telecom asking you to help with their 2.3 was that common back in the early 2000s that that would be a PUE of a data center? Uh, yes, I mean the um, the efficiency of the data centers was in general quite low. Uh, typically, you would see, and and that was the case both in Europe and in the US. I know from studies uh, uh, on this that there was 2.5 times more cooling capacity installed in the data center than that was actually used. And all those fans were running uh, using uh, uh, lots of power and, and uh, being very ineffective. Uh, uh, and that also had to do with uh, the, uh, the lack of physical separation from the traditional data centers um there was a, a lot of bypass uh, uh, and the delta t's that were achieved uh were quite low uh, and and that's also something uh, we improved and that way created the uh, maximum efficient uh, data center basically gotcha so if you don't mind pedro as we go through this uh we're going to use terms that uh, is for me as a sales guy i don't always firmly understand and if you don't mind i'll stop in the middle and just ask both of your opinions and both of your explanations so jamie um pedro mentioned delta t do you mind in a in as simple a terms as smart engineers can do you mind explaining delta t uh to folks who may not f fully understand what we're talking about when we say delta t Sure. And, you know, with the different systems you're using, sometimes you're talking about delta T's and different scenarios, you know, with uh, across the rack or, or at the unit, you know, outside. But um, what we're talking about here primarily is the temperature rise across the IT equipment. So if you're delivering air at 70 degrees and you're returning it at 90 degrees, you're looking at a 20 degree delta T. And, you know, that has a linear relationship with the amount of air that you need to move. The, the higher that delta T is, then the, the lower the amount of airflow uh, is to, to you know, absorb the same amount of heat from the IT equipment. Okay, so if I'm thinking about this as a, as a non-engineer sales guy, if the air getting sucked in the front of my equipment is 70 degrees and it blows out the back of the equipment at 90 degrees, if I want to change that 20 degree figure, I have to change it by increasing the amount of airflow? Is that how I change it? It depends on uh, which direction you want to go, right? If, if you increase that delta T, you are able to do that with a smaller amount of airflow. 
uh, when you lower that delta. Okay, increase the delta T, meaning if I want the front end to be 70 and I'm okay for the back end to be 95. So if I have a 25 degree, so an increase in delta T means I'm allowing more heat to come out and not get... just uh, rejected for a better lack of a better term, right? Exactly. Yeah. So the the temperature rise is maybe a better way to say that okay. um, from the air entering the uh, the equipment to the air leaving the equipment. So if I if I say this as best I can try to understand as a sales guy is the larger my delta T is, meaning the less hard my heat rejection equipment needs to work. Is that the right way to say it? Is a simple way to think about it? Yeah. It depends on the system. You know, one of the big things is that you are able to. Uh, drop your fan uh, airflow down, which then drops the fan speed and uh, can save a significant amount of energy. So so CFM, I'm reducing the cubic feet per minute of airflow. Is that that what you're telling me? Gotcha, gotcha. So if I'm on the other side of the curve, so let's say that my delta T is too big and I want to make it go down, is there, is a, again, a sales guy words, I'm sure I'm not using engineering terms. Can I make the air colder or make more air flow? Can I do either one? It really depends on the system. Uh, yeah, there are, you know, the, the temperature of the air does uh, come into play. When you look at purely the amount of airflow needed, um, that really is a, a temperature difference or, or delta T driven um, parameter. But the uh, the supply air and the return air have much more of an impact on the efficiency of the uh, the mechanical cooling system and or the amount of hours that you're able to economize. The, the higher you let those temperatures go, the more you can economize with outside air because there are more times of the year that the outside air conditions are cooler than the operating conditions in the data hall. So I think that's back to Pedro's comment about, you know, being in Northern Europe, he's got lots of time where he can use outside air. And, and so I'm getting very efficient. Um, so so I, I think I got a simple understanding of is the more I can use cold air that I didn't have to make cold, the more efficient my cooling equipment can run. But I'm, I'm just trying to get my arms around the notion of Delta T. If I'm trying to move cold air over the top of my IT equipment so that I um, keep it from breaking, I can either push more air over the equipment or I can get colder air. And however I'm doing that, whether I'm using outside air or whatever, th- those are my two options, yes? Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. I don't know if that helped anybody. It helped me. It made me understand better. All right. Well, Pedro, do you mind go, um, going back to the beginning? You, you, t- you walked us through how uh, you know the Del- uh, Dutch Telecom a- asked you, hey, we've got issues with the efficiency of our cooling. Um, you took them from 2.3 to 1.3. Can you give us some of, uh, a little bit of insight into the early days of Kyoto and, and, and how the wheel came about a little bit? We'd love to hear how that started. Yeah, when, when we uh, came up with the idea using heat recovery equipment, uh, which basically uh, the wheel in its origin is, uh, I looked at all the different means of uh, heat recovery, like a heat pipe, twin coil system, uh, uh, cross flow exchangers, and a, and a heat wheel, and, and made calculations for all those different options to see what would give the best results what is most scalable and also what is most uh, controllable. Um, and the wheel turned out to be our favorite. It, it uh, requires, especially for the larger uh, uh, volumes uh, and capacities, it requires uh, very little space. 
uh, and and uh, since you can control the speed of the, the wheel uh, and you can control the air volume you push to the wheel you really can control the capacity you get out of the wheel quite accurate and and uh, so uh, we decided to uh, to use the wheel as our uh, uh, solution for uh, uh, for the data center equipment uh, we we suggested that to uh, to our Dutch customer Dutch KPN and and um, they said well build us one and and let's see how it works uh, we we did a first data center and uh, immediately it, it showed the result that we calculated for uh, so we uh, we did three more data centers for them and then Holland is only a small country, so we run out of data centers at that time in Holland. And uh, uh, we were, the, the, as the guys who invented it, uh, we had a, a sort of farewell dinner to the uh, to the to the project, and we were sitting together and and uh, had the idea. Well, it's basically it's it would be a pity not to do anything with this idea. I mean, we if it works so great in Holland, uh, air is the same all over the world. So let's try to get out there and, and see if we can sell this idea to more people. So that's when we when we reached out, um, uh, found somebody who was really interested in, in Canada, Chris Fulton. Uh, and uh, he helped us starting to get feet on the ground in Canada and in the US. And the uh, the first data center we had a PO for him was the uh, state of Montana uh, data center for the uh, their government. Uh, Pedro, where, what year was that? Uh, that's in two thousand eight, uh, late two thousand eight, uh, just after we started the company. And uh, then we had uh, uh, right after that uh, Rogers in uh, in Toronto. Uh, a data center for them and that's when things really get started uh, and from there it, it slowly spread all over the world uh, we we founded a company uh, the Kyoto cooling name was something that wasn't there uh, when we did those first projects for the uh, the uh, Dutch KPN uh, but um, uh, we came up with the, the name, founded the uh, the company, and and uh, specialized on uh, on cooling data centers, and uh, uh, that's uh, that's about uh, uh, three hundred megawatts ago, I think. Three hundred megawatts. All right. Any history behind the name Kyoto? What what it means, or or, or how you came up with Kyoto? Yeah, the uh, the the Kyoto name was really um, based on the Kyoto Treaty uh in in the uh, late 80s early 90s uh the first uh environmental treaty uh, that was uh, uh done was done in kyoto and the treaty that got out of there to reduce energy consumption co2 co2 production uh, was called the kyoto treaty uh i think at that time it was a much uh, in, more important uh much more important piece of uh, um, uh, guideline for european uh, uh, governments than uh, it was in some other places and people associated kyoto 
and the treaty with uh, efficiency and with energy uh, reduction and CO2 reduction. So that's why we came up with the name. Uh, the, uh, the the diff the difficult thing is that the Japanese think it's a Japanese firm, so you have to explain that it's not the case. But uh, that's that's how it came. Very good. I appreciate that history. So so Pedro, as you've described it, you're you're of course there in Holland. Uh, you talked about uh, moving the uh, the product and the company's uh, sales into Canada, and then the first deal happening in Montana. All northern climates um, is. I, based on the concept of what the Kyoto wheel does, certainly a, um, uh, you know, the, the outside air uh, helps with that efficiency. Is that where Kyoto started because of the strength? And, and, and I know you have installs all over the world now, but is that why you started in the north? Because it was uh, the easiest fit for the solution at, at the beginning? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, obviously, the, the projects in Holland were started there because we were living there and that's where the customer was. Uh, uh, Chris Fulton, being a Canadian, uh, uh, started out in his his own region, uh, so um, uh, that that the reason uh, those first projects were also in the northern part of the U.S. and and in uh, in Canada. Um, the 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 nice thing uh, about Kyoto cooling is that uh, once I started to do calculations uh, across the world. Uh, uh, you see the efficiency uh, is getting less when the climate is getting hot, but uh, you still have enormous savings uh, due to the fact that people associate the certain places. Like, for instance, uh, I, I, we, we did some stuff in Saudi Arabia, and uh, everybody understands Saudi Arabia is a very hot climate. Uh, uh, a lot of sunshine and uh, warm temperatures, uh, but that's during the day. So in your mind, it, it's, uh, it's a region where you say free cooling isn't possible. Uh, uh, if, you, uh, if you do the real calculation, then you find out that there's more than 50% of free cooling capacity still inside a Kyoto wheel in, in Saudi Arabia. And, and that's also how we did our projects in, in uh, South Africa in Australia, uh, in South America, where we uh, achieve a little bit less than what you typically see in the Northern Hemisphere, but still uh, enormous savings compared to uh, the traditional equipment. Jamie, as, as we uh, talk more and, and learn more about what the um, Kyoto Wheel does and how it works, can you take a, a few minutes and walk me through when I think of um, uh, uh, this this air um, using air instead of compressors. Um, I think of you know directly blowing cold air into a space, and this I think you told me is a right way to think about this. Is this is an indirect heat exchange? Can you talk with me about what you mean by that and, and what's going on and why it's better? Sure. So when you think about a traditional say office building, which is probably what most people are familiar with from a kind of an HVAC system and. Um, it has you know very basic compressor cooling system, and uh, m most often there is a direct airside economizer to save energy during the times of the year or times of the day that the outside air conditions are cooler or have less enthalpy, um, which is you know the actual dry bulb temperature and humidity conditions than the inside conditions. So during those times, you will open a damper and use outside fresh air directly into the space to cool it and to turn off. Uh, the compressors. Typically, 
in as long as there's not a, a fire or, or some other condition outside that would cause that to be a concern, that is very acceptable and a, a, an easy way to save energy in this kind of environment. However, in more critical applications, when you get into really anything that's mission critical, whether it's chip fabrication or healthcare or data centers where air quality is of a little bit of a higher concern, that becomes a challenge both from particulate in the air, whether it is you know, dust or smoke um, or pollen um, or even uh, the fact that the humidity and temperature varies more quickly outside uh, and so e even temperature control becomes a little bit more of a challenge where your systems are trying to keep up. Uh, the, the indirect uh, methods of economization provide a little bit of a buffer for that. They provide a, you know, a separation between the quality of the outside air and the inside of the data center and they also let you handle the fluctuations in temperature and humidity uh, much better. Pedro, I'm going to come back to you. As, as I look at, and, and again, in, in a, in a non-engineer sales guy view of the world, I go look at the Kyoto wheels that we install in our customers' data centers, and I will say the wheel looks to me like a radiator, uh, just a simple sales guy view of the world. Um, and, and when I think of a radiator, I think of air or fluid passing through the radiator and changing temperatures just as a uh, in a simple understanding. Um, is that is that right? And and if it is, great. If not, tell me how I'm wrong. And if you don't mind taking me through a couple minutes of, of how that heat exchange actually happens. Yeah, it basically is a, a big round radiator. And, and typically in a radiator, you normally have inside the radiator, you have the hot water or cold water uh, flowing to cool the fins. Uh, and those fins cool the, uh, the bypassing air. Uh, uh, we have a radiator, but it's just uh, the material, the aluminum uh, honeycomb of the wheel um, that transfers the heat from uh, one side of the, uh, the system to the other side. Uh, uh, the, uh, the hot return air coming from the data center heats up the, uh, the aluminum honeycomb uh, uh, while passing through it, uh, uh, and uh, the wheel um, slowly rotates from the uh, uh, inside air, so from the data center air to the outside air section where uh, cold outside air flows to the radiator and uh, takes away the heat that was uh, uh, brought there by the, uh, the servers. Uh, cools down the aluminum honeycomb uh, while it rotates back into the airstream of the uh, the data center air. Uh, cool at that point, heating up from the uh, 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 from the warm air returning from the data center, uh, and and by that cooling down the air temperature, and that's a continuous process uh, uh, that will slowly moving. And it's basically the uh, the honeycomb mass that is your cooling mechanism. 
So, Pedro, I got another um, Kyoto Wheel question, but I want to ask Jamie a question because you brought up a term that, that I, as a sales guy, I just think we make things colder. Let's just blow cold air in there. And and I hear when I talk to engineers, they correct me and they go, no, Raymond, we're doing heat rejection. And and uh, you used uh, that term when you were describing the wheel. So, Jamie, can you tell me the right way to think about that? I, I think of the notion of let's just make it colder. And I, and I know I'm not saying it right. So what is heat rejection? Why do we say it that way? And why what's the right way to think about sure, it? Sure. I think... Uh, a good way to think about it, um, and I go back to probably in when I was in high school and going through physics, and the first time I really thought about heat transfer type stuff is w- when you put a a hot item in the refrigerator. It's it's almost better to think about not the refrigerator making that item colder, but that item, that soup or whatever it is, is actually making the air around it in the refrigerator warmer, and then the compressor is working to cool that down. Right, so. That, that soup in that case is projecting its heat to the cooler, uh, lower potential space. So uh, when you think about a data center like this, you have um, your IT equipment in the space that needs to be cooled and it is generating a lot of heat. We are pushing cooler air into the space and that is getting sucked in through the, um, through the, the cabinets. Sometimes it's pressure driven. A lot of times they have their own fans on there. They're pulling that air across. It is absorbing the heat first from that equipment. And then now that that airstream has absorbed the heat, that same airstream needs to reject that heat to be able to continue that cycle and to absorb again. So, you know, it's um, it's a process of absorption and rejection. So once that air or water, whatever your medium is, has been heated up, it is, it is sent back to the equipment that you're using to do the cooling, and, and you're using some method to ex- basically extract the heat or energy from that medium and reject it to the outside air. Okay, so when I hear the word heat rejection, we're talking about pushing that hot medium out of the space. That's what we're talking about when we say heat rejection. And then, and and, and uh, I never, uh, they never let me in physics class, so I'm going to say it, uh, it more simply. So if I've got a hot processor, that processor is cooling down on its own, right? The heat is coming off of that processor, and what we're doing is we're moving that hot air. So if I had 70 degree air next to a processor that's running at 120, as that processor throws off its 120 degree 120 degree air, it's heating up my 70 degree air. Correct. That's what's happening. Yeah, it's rejecting air, its own heat. It's rejecting its own heat. Yeah. It's making my air hotter, and now I've got to get my air out of the room to reject it out of the exactly. room. Exactly, and that's kind okay. of the refrigerator thing, where it's really that hot item that's making the surrounding air hotter, and that okay. and that other system is just working to recool its own air back down. Right, and in a closed loop in a refrigerator, it's just forcing to make its all of its air cooler. In a data center, I'm pushing the air out of the room. That's the term. Exactly. I'm rejecting the heat. I got you. All right. Because I hear the word heat rejection and I don't quite get my arms around what we're saying there. That that helps a bunch. This might be better as a vlog, you know, in the future so we can draw pictures of wheels. But uh, Pedro, I'm sorry. I'm going to come back to you on on the honeycomb and on the wheel. Um, So so first question, were you so smart that the first time you you did this, you go, okay, guys, what we need is a big, slow-moving wheel in a honeycomb made out of aluminum? Or was there lots of trial and error to get to that No, basically, uh, after doing the calculation. Uh, I, I mean, I, I worked uh, uh, for the last 30 years using wheels for HVAC applications uh, here in Europe. And uh, so I was fam- very familiar with the wheel and, and what you could achieve with it. 
just never imagined using it for a data center uh, in a, in a recirculation loop. Uh, that was basically the the only new thought about it. Uh, uh, obviously, uh, we had a lot of try and error situations by trying to make it uh, uh, more efficient uh, and what would be the best way to, uh, the best speed to drive it, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the best layout for sizing uh, the wheel size compared to the capacity and the airflow you want to get out of it. Uh, there was uh, there was quite a, a bit of uh, trial and error in it. Uh, the system, uh, all the systems we built worked uh, basically without any problems. But uh, through the years, you learn how to uh, get the maximum efficiency out of your investment and and uh, uh, how to scale things. Uh, uh, the, in the best way and also how to control things in the best way i mean the certainly in the early years the controls were um uh, were quite basic and that's something we really developed into a state-of-the-art uh, way to make sure you have uh, the uh the, the the highest possible uh, uh availability uh uh, uh, also from your controls and and from the uh, the whole uh, Kyoto group. is the um it, so so if I understand you right, Pedro, you were using the wheel in other applications, and what was unique about Kyoto was to use it in the data center space. Does the is is that the right understanding of, of how you're describing the the um, genesis of this solution? Yeah, yeah. Typically, the HVAC applications um, bring in outside air, uh, uh, bring that into the building. And do heat recovery with the uh, uh, with the wheel, uh, or uh, uh, and and what we did is we we the outside air goes through the wheel and goes outside again, and the data center air goes to the wheel and goes into the data center again. So there's in 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 the in in the large uh, picture there is two separate air streams that don't mix. Is um and and I think Jamie, this is what you were talking about about direct air and air to air. So so the air in the data center, which we care about particulates and and humidity, stays inside that, for lack of a better term, a closed loop. And the outside air is doing its job, but it's not coming in. It's not getting blown into the data center. Is that right? That is correct. Okay, got to just make sure I understand that right. Um, so so um. Next question, and, and I'm going to go down a little bit of a different path because when we think about Kyoto and we think about cooling, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk about because at Compass we're big fans of uh, Kyoto and 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 not having compressors and and also not having water. Um, as I hear you describe it, Pedro, in the early days, this air-to-air -air heat exchange, you know, named uh, I did not know named after the Kyoto Accord, I think was the name of that treaty. So very much environmentally aware from the very beginning, green. And when I think about, when we talk with customers about why we think this is the best answer, 
we talk about the reliability uh, of the system because of the lack of complexity. It doesn't have 7,000 moving parts. It doesn't have things that compressors and other things that can break. We like it from that regard, but we also love the sustainability part. So so um, I'd love to switch the conversation a little bit, guys, and talk about the fact that we don't use water, why we don't use water, some of the problems that get introduced with systems that have water, and, and just the challenges of cooling, whether it's uh, you know evaporative cooling or, or, or chilled water loops. So just some of the ways we've cooled data centers before on the water side. Jamie, if you take a few minutes and give us what are some of the water solutions and why we think this air-to-air -air heat exchange might be superior. Sure. sure. Um, and I think first I'll kind of talk about uh, at a high level some of the considerations when, when, when you do look at using water. Um, you, you have you know, availability, you have reliability, and then I think you, you also talked about sustainability. So they're, they're all interrelated, but they are a little bit different in, in the way that you think about them. Obviously, water is not a uh, widely available um, or cheap resource in all parts of the world. And that is just a reality. And, and also the reality that it is becoming harder to, uh, to come by or rely on, um, which kind of brings us to the reliability aspect that um, with most of these data centers, the primary reliability aspect really goes back to the electrical power. It's your utility power, your batteries, your, your UPS, you have your generators. And as long as you're providing power to all the mechanical cooling equipment and all the electrical equipment, all of that is staying online and operating even through uh, failure scenarios, loss of utility power. When you bring water in, now you have another reliability study or consideration because that is an entirely separate utility that is not, you know, really interlocked with the, uh, with the electrical system. So now you need to look at: Are there any times of the year that that local jurisdiction is going to cut the water off? What are the water quality issues? Um, has this area had or is expected to have any incoming uh, drought scenarios, which is also becoming a lot more common, even in areas that haven't typically had that concern. Um, and then from a sustainability standpoint, yeah, that really goes back to water usage. Even if it's available, um, are there project concerns or local concerns or, or just you know company goals in terms of reducing water consumption? I think if you look at like a, a cooling tower scenario, which is one that uses about the, the most um, water uh, for any of the different systems out there. Um, that's like typically 7 million gallons of water per year per megawatt. And so when you start looking at these campuses in a hyperscale level of, you know, two, 300 megawatts, that is a lot of water. Um, so I, I think that, that that is where, you know, the the conversations become critical in, in our industry for, for water usage. Um, and then in terms of how we use it, there's really a lot of different systems. And it starts the most water, like I said, it's kind of going up to the, the evaporative cooling tower um, that is used to cool a, uh, you know, a water-cooled chilled water system that's then used to provide uh, chilled water to the uh, crawl units, you know, as opposed to using something like the Kyoto wheel or compressors in that, in that sense. And um, that's the, the most water. There are um, scenarios in between where we use, um, you know, direct evaporative cooling where we're using outside air and we're misting essentially, you know, water under that for adiabatic cooling. We also have another, you know, method where people use uh, various indirect evaporative cooling methods, um, again, where there's air, air quality concerns and that kind of separates that. But in all cases, you're using water and, and even if you're reducing it by 
80% by going with a direct evaporative method as opposed to a cooling tower, that's still 80% of, of 7 million gallons per year per megawatt. So it's still a very large Awful. number. Yeah. So, so I want to try to, to, to restate it just to make sure that I understand it. So, so the first point I think I heard you made is we've got reliability, we've got uh, you know, sustainability, and, and, um, and the reliability and availability issue. We already recognize that from a power perspective, right? We've got generators and we've got dual power feeds and we've got substations. We all get that part in the data center business. But by adding water to your data center, it's a whole separate subsystem that we've got to depend on the utility to provide us from an availability perspective. That's what I think was the first point, right? Absolutely. And so, yeah, you're, you're looking at the... Um like I said, the reliability of that water source, you're looking at the water quality, what additional water quality measures are you going to have to have chemical additives or different things to, to that. Um, and then you also have to look at potential for water storage. If water is utilized in your primary cooling and heat rejection for the site, then that realistically cannot go down or, or you have lost your yeah, my reliabilities. Um, you're, you're, yeah, yeah. You're, you're one of your not one of your one of your nines, right? Yeah, yeah. You've lost that or maybe a couple at that point. So the um, the reality is at that point you're needing to store water, you're needing to treat that water, you know, you're, you're having to pay to to um, to have a tank or and space for that to store it and you know figuring out how long that's needed for and you know usually that's a minimum of 12 hours, 24 hours, whatever that's decided for for uptime or whatever your your current agreement is with a particular client or tenant. So um, that becomes a, a, a cost and space issue. Yeah, land utilization, um, you know, storing water, it's not small and easy to store. Just like I have belly tanks that, that make my generators run and people want to know how much fuel can you put in there and how long is that thing going to run? I got the same consideration, but now I have it with this heavy um, 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 you know, element of water of where am I going to put it? It's going to take lots of space. It's going to be super heavy. It's going to eat up a lot of the land on, uh, that I use, as well as now uh, just availability of water. Can I get the kind of water I need? I'm in, a, in, I'm in an area where I got water. So, so from an availability sustainability standpoint, that that makes a lot of sense. I appreciate that. I'm going to ask for one more clarifying. Uh, point. So the first one was, it's a whole nother layer that challenges my availability and my reliability. The second point I think, Jimmy, is it just uses tons of water at the high end, seven, I think you said 7,000? About 7 million per one megawatt. It really depends on the system. Gallons. Yes. Yep. Oh my goodness. And then, and then evaporative cooling, just want to make sure I've got my arms around that. I've got hot air coming in, in a simple concept, one side of, of, of my airflow. I missed cool, uh, I missed water over the top of it that hot air causes the water to evaporate, the exchange of evaporation drops the temperature of my air and cools my air. Is that what I'm doing? Correct, but you, you have to have the availability for it to absorb water. So again, that, that limits you in, in certain locations because you know, in, in many locations, there are the times that it's hot, it's also humid. And so the, the, um, you know, the wet bulb depression you get, the availability you have to, to absorb that water um, is not always there. Certainly in certain extreme cases, you can look at it, but then when you look at it on a bin level around the, the whole, you know, annualized hours, um, that, that becomes a, a challenge and your, your, your peak efficiency can look very high, but there are a lot of times of the year that you're not able to get a lot. So for those of you who aren't listening in Texas, Houston would not be a great place to run evaporative cooling, right? It is not traditionally a great place <laughs> gotcha. for that. And Arizona could be great if I think about it. Is that, is that a sure. fair example? Sure. Uh, that is correct, but the, the, um, the interesting thing that goes along with that, a lot of places that um, evaporative coolers, or you may hear them in, in the, uh, the kind of the 
the Home Depot term, the swap cooler, right? That, you know, that those kind of the same uh, thermodynamic principles, but the places that those work the best, the water availability or quality tends to be the worst because it is, it is naturally dry in those locations. Right. I, yeah, so, where, so, so ironically, where it would work the greatest, I'm probably in a desert and I have a hard time getting water there anyway. So, so it's, right, it's scarce or yeah, expensive. I understand, yeah. I got it. Pedro, so, so um, uh, the, um, tell me if this is a fair way to characterize it. Is, as you came up with the idea of using the wheel in the data center and, and even with the name choosing Kyoto, uh, is it fair for me to say that you were green before green was cool? Yeah, and I mean the, the 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 when we started, we wanted to be more efficient, and being more efficient as a uh, as a sideline has that you are green, but also that you save a lot of money, uh, which is a very nice combination. I mean, there's there's lots of stuff we have to do uh, for our government uh, and and for the environment that's costing us money. And, and here we came up with an idea that saves us money and we're green at the same time. So that, that, that really was, uh, was the driver for this. A, a nice win-win. I often find that if you do the right thing for the right reasons, it usually ends up being the right thing for the right reasons on more than one level, which love love that that worked out with Kyoto. Uh, love that that was um, the motivation behind even, even the name and that, it, and that it's helped lead our industry in a direction where it needed to go. Because I think, I think at times, guys, our industry gets a little bit of a knock for being big users of electricity and also a big knock for being big users of, of water. And I think that, you know, I, I personally think if you look at the measure of amount of compute we're delivering versus the amount of energy we're burning, um, we're actually dropping that number and our industry's headed in the right direction. Yes, uh, and the other thing I think is, is that the world looks at our industry and says, oh, those bad data center people, and they don't connect the dots that everything you do on your phone is happening in our data centers. <laughs> that, that, on the phone that's running in our data centers. So, so right. They're making that comment on the article on their phone. That there's some electricity in our, our business. Yeah. Well, guys, I'm super grateful that both of you joined us. Pedro, the fact that you joined us all the way from the Netherlands is awesome. Uh, at the end of each one of our podcasts, we, we, we've, we've got a bit of a tradition started where we uh, give away uh, um, fabulous prizes to our guests. Uh, and, and this, uh, here we are on, on the 12th of March. What we've decided is that both of you, you're, you can have attend any Major League Baseball spring training game you want in the next two weeks or any NCAA tournament basketball game in the next two weeks you want. All expense paid by, by Compass Data Centers. So um, we, 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 yeah, we're, we're happy to host you guys at either either one of those. Um, and, I uh, and, and I apologize, Pedro, if you don't get the joke that all of those events have been canceled here in the U, U.S. Due to, due to the virus. So um <laughs> As, as they as they are in okay, Europe, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and I'm not allowed, I'm not allowed to enter the U.S. anymore. So I, I would have a hard time to collecting this price. Thank you very much. All right, Pedro. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Even though you can't join us for spring training baseball, we'll uh, we'll all go home and watch Netflix and uh, and hopefully survive this. So thank you guys for joining us, and uh, look forward to seeing you out there in the marketplace. Thank you guys. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you.